This is The Guardian. New Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says he's the man to clear up the mess his predecessor left behind. Some mistakes were made. And I have been elected as leader of my party, in part, to fix them. But only a day into the job, he's already knee-deep in controversy. Was his Home Secretary right to resign last week for a breach of security? Sunak says he's going back to the 2019 manifesto, which gave the Conservatives a mandate. But can the Tories really pretend that the last few chaotic months just didn't happen? I'm Gabby Hinsliff, in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are the political strategist Joe Tanner and Will Tanner, absolutely no relation, director of the centre-right think tank Onward and former advisor to Theresa May, number 10. Hello both. Hello, Gabby. Hi. Great to have you with us. Before we come to the, the new Prime Minister, a quick word uh, on the the old one. Both of you have worked for senior politicians. If you were advising Liz Truss now, what would you be suggesting she does next i mean ed balls and strictly it worked for him do you think she could do something like that joe or that's not a bad suggestion actually um i i honestly don't know i think we are in very strange times that that there are now three former prime ministers sitting behind rishi sunak in the chamber which i'm not sure has ever happened before i think she should maybe have a little bit of time off and just lick her wounds a bit and think about what she's done and maybe work out how to make amends with some of those that she's upset on her own side, but also um, uh, think about her rehabilitation. Your boss seems to be basically living her best life on the back benches now, Will. I mean, could could you see Liz becoming a kind of grandee in the same way? Or can you not do that after seven weeks? Well, I think what separates Theresa and Liz Truss is, um, despite Brexit and despite the kind of way her premiership ended, she was always actually quite a kind of quietly unifying figure on the backbenches, And people respected her and saw her as someone who dedicated her life to the party. I'm not sure it's quite the same for Liz Truss. Um, uh, she's dedicated her life to a set of ideas, that's for sure. Um, but whether or not they're shared across the Conservative Party, I don't know. I agree with Joe. a moment of kind of quiet reflection, perhaps going on holiday. Um, to the Caribbean and, seems uh, popular. Yeah, that's... Yeah, indeed. Uh, it's what former prime ministers do, apparently, these days, is go on holiday to the Caribbean. Um, so I, th- I think that is probably the best course of action, at least in the short term. I think she should go for a gig with a cheese marketing board, but that's just my personal view. Yeah. Anyway, uh, today we'll be talking much more seriously about the cabinet prime minister Sunak has chosen and what that might tell us about his plans, but also about potential bumps in the road ahead. Rishi Sunak has an intray full of uh, eye-wateringly difficult decisions, to quote his chancellor. Uh, so what will the sort of personal and political challenge from those be. It's kind of really hard to remember that seven weeks ago, it looked as if it was all over for Rishi Sunak. I mean, he'd lost his bid for the Tory leadership, been exiled to the back benches. Some people were saying, you know, maybe he'd quit politics altogether. Now, in a sort of extraordinary twist of fate, he's back and making his debut at Prime Minister's Questions. There were warm words on all sides today for the debut of Britain's first Prime Minister of British Asian Heritage, but things quickly got rather less friendly. So let's just get a quick flavour of the Labour attack line at PMQs. Even his own side know he's not on the side of working people. That's why the only time he ran in a competitive election, he got trounced by the former Prime Minister, who herself got beaten by a lettuce. <laughs> I, mean, I thought it was a pretty fluent debut, to be honest, for someone who hasn't done 
PMQs before. Will, what did you make of his performance? Uh, I did think it was a, a fluent uh, and confident debut from Rishi Sunak. Uh, he appeared very at ease at the dispatch box and seemed to quite relish the opportunity to be a bit more combative than you might normally be. Um, I think what was really interesting were two things. So firstly, the repeated refrain back to the 2019 manifesto, uh, a desire to root his premiership in the mandate won uh, at the ballot box in 2019. I think that's a good strategic choice, but also, I think, separates his type of conservatism from his last six weeks. Uh, and I think secondly, um, his desire to give off the impression of uh, a politician acting in the national interest, not his party's interest. Clearly, we've had a lot of talk about the Conservative Party over the last few weeks and months, uh, lots of Conservative Party intrigue. He was very clear, I think, to say that this is a national government uh, acting in the interest of everyone and willing to make difficult decisions that protect the most vulnerable, not just support the better off. Joe, what did you make of it stylistically? Well, I think it's a, it, it was going to be an interesting one because we spent a lot of the summer thinking... Gosh, the Tories have given a massive gift to Labour with all of this content about how awful the new Prime Minister Liz Truss is going to be because her economic plan isn't going to work. And of course, suddenly all that stuff that looked like great material has actually all come true. And the guy who's now in charge looks like the guy that knows what's going on. So I think for Labour, there was a bit of scrambling around of what exactly were they going to go on today? So I think from Rishi's point of view, it was clear that the, the election accusation was going to be the big one and probably non-DOMs. And of course, that came up too. So to some extent, there's a relatively limited sort of scope for attack with Rishi because, you know, he was more compassionate than some Conservatives have been in the past with, you know, the furlough scheme. It's quite hard to attack him. It might not have been perfect, but it certainly went a lot further than a lot of people ever expected a Conservative government to go through during COVID. So... I think to some extent he was pretty much holding his own. I think he, I suspect his team felt that they'd anticipated what was coming quite well, which I think is half the battle. You just mentioned um, non-DOM status and of course that came up. You know, there's been a lot of speculation that Labour wouldn't go for his wealth. Would you know, see that as a bit kind of blow the belt or whatever. But Starmer did ask a question about non-DOM status that was very clearly aimed at Sunak's wife. Akshata, I mean... What did you make of that? And why is it normally regarded as off limits in politics, aren't they? You know, that's, there's a sort of uh, nervousness usually about going after someone's family. Well, I thought it was very notable that Keir Starman did not actually mention uh, Rishi Sunak's wife. Uh, he just said that uh, he asked a question about non dom status. But he said, you'll know about all know, about how this works in your that. house. But there was yeah, no exactly. explicit reference. It was quite an oblique reference. And it felt to me that Labour was slightly pulling their punches because they're not sure about whether to attack Rishi Sunak on, the, on his wealth, on the amount of money that his uh, his family has. Um, uh, and they're not sure whether it's a viable attack line. I mean, I think when we've done focus groups, there has been an awareness amongst voters that Rishi is wealthy um, and that he dresses well. And that, I mean, the Prada shoes come up. But I do think that there is a broad view amongst voters that he is a politician who is willing to take tough decisions in the national interest. What I thought was interesting was the questions were mostly aimed at Sunak's judgment. You know, they were going after the sort of political naivety some people do see in him, the, the fact that he genuinely doesn't seem to get why his wife not paying British taxes would be a big deal. You know, the appointments that he's started to make it felt to me almost as if he was trying to play on those doubts that Tory MPs might have. I mean, the, the most dramatic of this, obviously, was, was the questions over the makeup of his first cabinet and a surprise comeback as Home Secretary for Suella Bremen. Did you, I mean, are you surprised to see her back, Joe, after the way 
she resigned, you know, resigning over a breach of security, emailing a confidential document to a to a backbench MP. You know, she resigned in disgrace a week ago and now here she is again. I was surprised on the one hand and I wasn't surprised on the other because we all know about deals that are done. We all know about wings of the party that need to be sort of given somebody in position that that therefore will sort of keep them at bay or keep them happy. Fundamentally, you know, what does for prime ministers is generally that your party turn on you. And so ensuring that you've got the various voices covered off in your your government is quite important and ensuring that some people get a top, you know, a top seat is also important. The problem is when you look at that wing of the party, there are certain people that are much harder to work with than others. So obviously they've taken a view that Suella was perhaps easier to work with than some of the other people that that perhaps were options. The second issue is that, I don't know, I could be slightly naive, but I think there's a degree of she's actually on on a sort of, she's already had a strike against her, as it were, because of what happened, which means that if you're sort of putting out an olive branch to that part of the party and then she screws up again, then you've actually got a kind of reason to be able to say, I can get rid of you quite quickly. The bit about the Suella thing just generally is that we've not really had a full explanation of what went on. It, the whole thing to me just isn't quite clear. It didn't seem clear to me how much of it was about what, you know, the sort of breach of security, the email business, and how much of it was about a falling out that she may or may not have had with Jeremy Hunt about immigration. I mean, it seems to me that bringing Suella back, Will, is making a big statement about where your government is going on immigration. It's not going to be a liberal immigration policy with with Suella in charge. I mean, you published a big report for Onward this week on the way forward for the choice, which did have some significant findings on what sort of government's target voters think about immigration. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, absolutely. And I entirely agree, Gabby. I think the, um, the focus on Suella Braveman's appointment in the context of her resignation a week ago is entirely the, the wrong way to look at her appointment. Her appointment in, in, is in many ways a very serious statement of intent from Rishi Sunak's government that he intends to call him, control immigration. And he's serious about um, delivering on the promise of the 2019 manifesto to see immigration fall and uh, particularly to see low-skilled immigration fall where, Rish, uh, where Suella Braveman has been uh, most vocal. Uh, our findings in our report after the fall published on Monday showed very clearly that uh, reducing immigration is a, a very important touchstone issue for the voters that the Conservative Party has lost since 2019. That's, uh, according to some polls, up to uh, around 60% of the voters that voted Conservative uh, in 2019. So an enormous loss of votes, typically in the red wall, typically more left-wing on the economy and more right-wing on authoritarian uh, kind of social and cultural issues. Um, and so immigration is vital. Um, and in 75% of constituent constituencies, we found that people were on average, more likely to say that immigration had undermined British society and culture than enriched it. So um, a very strong geographical distribution towards immigration not being positive for the country. So I think this statement of intent probably serves the politics of the government quite well. So do you think that's the end of, because under Liz Truss, it looked as if we were heading towards, briefly, in that sort of you know blink of an eye when she was Prime Minister, as if we were heading towards a more liberal immigration policy? Absolutely. We heard, we heard from Liz Truss, there was a kind of big push to solve labour shortages through immigration. I think what you'll see from Rishi Sunak and Suella Braveman in the future is a focus much more on training up British workers to do those jobs. We know we've got lots of people who are economically inactive at the moment. Uh, there are a huge number of people uh, wanting jobs in the British economy uh, rather than just outsourcing some of it to overseas workers. 
Do you think there's a cost to that in some seats, Joe? Because, I mean, as you say, there might well be a lot of support in red wall seats for tougher immigration policies. But do you think there's a cost for that in other places that the Tories might be wanting to attract support? There is this issue about where do you win elections, right? And you win them in the centre ground. So the idea that you go more hardline on immigration is is where some people that might have been willing to vote Tory would actually feel quite uncomfortable. And that's where things like Rwanda has been a really difficult policy because that's where people that, you know, I've never been a Tory party member. I've voted Tory in the past. I've voted Labour in the past. Normally, I will move on different issues that I'm passionate about at particular stages in my life. I'm a 45-year-old mum now, so I see things very differently than when I was a 20-year-old voter. But, you know, things like Rwanda, I'm very, very uncomfortable about. I do think there is a danger with this that while it might play to one part of the party, I've always wondered if you gain some but lose others in in this sort of territory because you you take the party too far away from the centre ground where fundamentally we we win elections. Surely that's where any party wins the elections. I mean, Will, as you say, you've worked in the Home Office. Do you think Swala Brabham is going to be welcomed back? I mean, I noticed Starmer asked in the Commons whether officials had objected to her reinstatement and, and Sunak did not answer, which was quite telling. Well, I don't think um, Home Office officials necessarily were the people that he was referring to. I'm sure he was referring to Cabinet Office and all the rest of it. But broadly, I actually think the Home Office uh, thought that Suella Braveman acted quite well in the interests of the Home Office. The Home Office is a department that very strongly has an institutional view, a kind of Home Office orthodoxy, a bit like the Treasury orthodoxy, uh, in favour of lower immigration, uh, quite tough measures on crime and uh, border security uh, on terrorist uh, and kind of national security issues too. It is a quite uh, tough department. Um, that's because it deals with unbelievable risks on behalf of the British public. And I, so I think Suella Braveman is not necessarily the worst messenger at all for that department, but clearly they will want to make sure that the reasons for her departure have uh, led to lessons being learned and that those that type of behaviour does not go on in the future. And her political future is dependent on that. There was another slightly controversial um, return, which is Gavin Williamson coming in as Cabinet Office Minister without portfolio. The Labour MP Steve Kinnock raised that again at PMQs because obviously Williamson was sacked by Theresa May after being accused of um, leaking sensitive national security information. Now, he's obviously been back since. But, Joe, do we, should we see that as another favour returned, really, for the, the help that Williamson gave Zunak during his leadership campaign? Well, it certainly looks like it. I, the reaction was overwhelmingly sort of surprised, but then also again, oh, hang on, yeah, not that surprising, really. You know, Williamson is known as, or oh, sorry, Sir Gavin Williamson, as we should call him now, isn't it? Is is well known as an operator, and um, and and you know, and it goes back to that same old point that that fundamentally you need to have people in that are are able to help unite. I mean, I I guess. Rishi and his team have taken a view that it's it's the gamble worth taking. And we'll all find out soon enough whether that's true. Doesn't it to me there's lots of strong personalities jostling in that kind of, you know, you've got two ministers without portfolio, Williamson and Nadim Zahawi, and you've got Oliver Dowden as well in a kind of Chancellor of Duchess of Lancaster, similar kind of roving role. It's quite, quite a lot of cooks in the kitchen, it seems to me, with, with sort of claims to be the strategic genius behind this government. How do you think that's going to work out well? Well, I think what you saw with the reshuffle is you actually saw a load of round pegs being put in round holes. So you've got Nadim Zahawi, uh, the founder of one of the UK's leading polling companies in YouGov, being put in as party chairman. Who, I mean, who better to understand where voters are than, uh, than Nadim Zahawi? Similarly, you've got Oliver Dowden, who uh, for many years was 
David Cameron's deputy chief of staff, uh, his enforcer across Whitehall, someone who understands the way the centre of government works better than anyone else on the backbenchers in as uh, the head of the cabinet office, effectively chief operating officer for government. And you've got Gavin Williamson, who you're right, um, does engage in dark arts. He is a uh, master of the shady side of politics, but he is unbelievably effective at it. Um, and so you saw, I think, Rishi Sunak and his team rightly understand the capabilities of different people and put them in roles where they could excel uh, as a team, rather than having people constantly kind of in a position because the government needed to give them a position for some particular reason. So we'll come um, to the return of Michael Gove in a bit and what that means for, for levelling up. Just a quick word as well about what happened to his former rivals for the premiership. We had 11 cabinet ministers departing, trust sites departing, but some some sort of uh, familiar faces staying on. Penny Mordaunt didn't get the promotion she wanted, remains leader of the Commons, seems pretty cross about it. And Kemi Badenoch, who some would definitely see as a, as a future leader, stays at trade, which on one hand is quite low profile, but, but also gets the equalities Minister's brief. Does, does Kemi's appointment mean that the sort of culture wars are back on, do you think, Joe? Because that's certainly, she took a pretty combative approach as junior equalities minister. Yeah, and they've kind of started already from just her appointment. It's kind of started the conversation off again, hasn't it? So I actually think it's a really interesting role to have let Penny keep. The leader of the house is traditionally seen as a bit of a, almost like a bit of a graveyard, really. It was seen once upon a time as not a lot happened. However, as we did see last week, you can step in on a urgent question. You also, you know, business questions once a week is a time that you give airtime to lots of MPs. And it's seen as, as a place where you can you can actually sort of almost give out some favours to people. So as a future PM, it's actually a pretty good ground. It's a pretty good fertile ground for her. If I was thinking about the long term, as easy as it is to say, well, I'd like the defence job. You know, there's potentially a row about spending coming on there. Foreign, you're off around the world, but do you actually get to be seen that much by the home ground? I think Kemi made it clear she wanted that job, and I'm not sure there was a bigger job she would have been given. So I suspect it was a case of it was a natural place for her to go. And I don't think she'd been seen as doing a bad job. I think the equalities bit being given to her is is certainly an interesting move. Um, We shall see how that one plays out. I know that the media have certainly responded to it straight away. Striking to have only seven women in his cabinet. I mean, I'm you're, we're all old enough to remember when David Cameron was setting targets for 30% of the cabinet to be female, and that was quite a long time ago. It feels like we've gone backwards on that a bit. And I think they've got to make some serious ground in the junior ministerial roles. I, I think that it would be a huge mistake if we don't see a significant number of ministers of state that are women coming through, because there's there's been a period of time where we've seen a lot of that have been in the sort of parliamentary undersecretary sort of level and they haven't really managed to get through to be proper mozzies as they're known in the in the game and I think it would be really good to see some of those people he's he has appointed people that have come back but that also means he's worked with a lot of these people before so he probably knows who he can get on with who he can't stand who he who he can do business with and who he can't. There's a bit of experience there, very recent experience to be able to work with. Very, very recent in some cases. Anyway, let's pause, <laughs> let's pause here for a minute. And when we come back, we'll be looking at potential policy bumps in the road ahead for Rishi Sunak. Hello, Jonathan Friedland here, host of The Guardian's Politics Weekly America podcast. And I'm on a road trip across the United States talking to politicians, canvassers, voters in the run-up to these crucial midterm elections, finishing with analysis of what happens on election night in Washington, D.C. 
kicks off from November the 2nd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Um, I was really struck that in Sunak's sort of first speech to the nation outside number 10, he felt the need to say, I'm not daunted, because he does inherit a pretty daunting situation. You know, an economic crisis his predecessor made worse, potentially a looming foreign policy crisis in Ukraine as well, a 36-point lead for Labour, and he's relatively inexperienced. I mean, to come first to the economics, we learned on Wednesday that the Halloween budget's been moved forward to 17th of November because apparently Sunak wants to get under the bonnet of the economy first, which makes sense in some ways because the old timetable was very tight. But it also does suggest, doesn't it, Joe, that he's not just sort of going to accept Jeremy Hunt's plan at face value. He does want to give it a bit more of a once over first. Yeah, but was he ever? I mean, was he ever going to? I mean, if you're a former chancellor being PM, surely you are, you know, you are going to have your fingers in pies and looking over everything and, you know, checking stuff. I mean, ultimately, he called it over the summer. He predicted what was likely to happen. He was, he was, the warnings were coming through in the leadership campaign. Jeremy Hunt, probably in terms of what he did propose when he came in, was not a million miles away from the things that Rishi was suggesting anyway. So to some extent, if you're a former chancellor and you're now prime minister, do you really want someone who thinks that they're cleverer than you and better than you at all this and have got more experience than you? Or do you actually want someone that you can kind of still influence a bit, you can maybe challenge, perhaps and be challenged by? But but fundamentally, I think it it's not a bad position for Rishi to be in, to have somebody that he can then say, hang on a minute, you know, have you looked at this or have you been in and looked at filing cabinet four where we kept the emergency biscuits and you know, and the and the sort of the special pen that could blow this up or whatever. Fundamentally, it's got to be a better position for him to have someone that he can work with. And sometimes, it, if you know a little bit more than that per, than the other person you're working with, that might be helpful. Although it wouldn't have been. It's interesting because it wouldn't have been. I suspect he's Sunak. He wouldn't have been Sunak's first pick for Chancellor of Chancellor if uh, Sunak had won in summer. Well, I mean, Hunt sort of had indicated this wasn't going to be austerity mark two. Tax rises might maybe do more of the heavy lifting than spending cuts this time. Do you think that's still the case? Because tax, tax rises are quite a sensitive issue for Sunak, given his record in office. Well, they are, but it depends what tax rises uh, he and Jeremy Hunt are looking at and who they fall on. I think uh, one of the difficulties with Liz Truss's mini-budget a few weeks ago was that it looked like the tax cuts were benefiting certain people rather than others. I think if the government turned around now and said they were raising taxes on, for example, high earners or uh, or the most profitable businesses uh, or, for example, energy companies that have made extraordinary profits during uh, the last year or so, then I think there would be widespread public sympathy and the markets would be very understanding of that. So I think it depends what they do. Someone described um, Rishi Sunak this week, I think, quite perceptively as an investor rather than an entrepreneur, i.e. he is someone who is prepared to make big bets. But in order to do so, he studies the long term trends, he looks at the data, he makes sure he's absolutely sure of his position, and then he moves. And I think that's very astute. Um, I think he's quite different in some respects to some former uh, Prime Ministers, Boris Johnson, famously much more entrepreneurial and risk-taking in his approach. So you're likely to see that with 
the fiscal statement on the 17th. I think that's one of the reasons why he delayed it. So he didn't rush into decisions he might regret. And we shouldn't forget that Rishi Sunak over the last three years or so, um, as chancellor, he delivered what, five, six fiscal statements um, during a pandemic, during a period of extraordinary economic turmoil, and none of them unraveled in the way that George Osborne's budget unraveled in whenever it was 2014, in the way that the mini budget unraveled a few weeks ago. So uh, Jeremy Hunt taking his advice, I think, is probably quite a sensible suggestion. They seem like the good old days when all we had to worry about was pasty tax, though, don't they, really? <laughs> yeah, the world ended over sausage rolls. <laughs> You mentioned earlier, Will, uh, this refrain about going back to the 29 manifesto. And let's just have a listen to what Rishi said uh, earlier this week on the steps of number 10 about that. The mandate my party earned in 2019 is not the sole property of any one individual. It is a mandate that belongs to and unites all of us. And the heart of that mandate is our manifesto. I will deliver on its promise. And he's obviously done that to counter the idea that he doesn't have a, a, a democratic mandate. I mean, do, does that shape the spending review at all, do you think? Because obviously you're going to stick to the manifesto. Then there were lots of quite specific commitments in there. You know, the triple law on pensions was a manifesto commitment. Should we kind of read that as meaning we're going to stick to every letter of the 2019 manifesto, even though a lot, you know, a lot of water's gone under the bridge since then? I think he's almost got the best of both worlds in that, he can go back to the 2019 manifesto and say, this is what we were voted in on. Ah, but things have changed a bit now. And so, you know, we are now having to look at, we can't go as far as we wanted to on that, or we can't look at doing that in quite the same way. He's got, he's got a degree of wriggle room, which in, you know, to some extent is a benefit. But then on the other hand, it's, it's a massive problem because of the black hole that's been created. So it's not as if he's got as much flexibility as he had before. Um, because what you could have said was, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, we, we can't, we don't need to do that anymore because we've got these options. But it's the reverse. It's that he's got less options because of the state of the public finances. So they've got to take a view and say, look, these are the big ticket items on the 2019 manifesto. Really, have we got any room to move from those? Yeah. And, and we knew and we, we did hear, remember, Boris Johnson said the reason they hadn't delivered on the manifesto so far was because no one put COVID in a manifesto. So they already had that backdrop as well as to why they hadn't done as much as they'd wanted to do. Looking at some of those appointments, I mean, Mel Stride to Department of Work and Pensions, Steve Barclay to Health. I mean, these are sort of old Treasury hands. They're not, you know, I would have said of a bean counter disposition more than a bleeding heart disposition, probably. Will, what does that tell us about how safe those those budgets are? Well, I think what those appointments demonstrate is a desire to have effective administrators in difficult departments where you have uh, lots of moving parts. They're not kind of big radical thinkers. They're people who want to get stuff done properly. In terms of those budgets, I think you will see a desire to reform some of those services. If you want to be seen to be delivering on the NHS, you do need to get down waiting lists, get people into GP appointments, uh, start moving some of that. Uh, enormous amount of money that we spend on the NHS into real delivery for services. And clearly the NHS has been through a very difficult time over the last few years, but it, uh, I think there is more to do to deliver for patients and focus on patient outcomes rather than 
some of the inputs into that service, whether that's money or people. So I think that's the type of message and the type of focus that you'll see from both Stephen and Mel. I think both are good appointments that should start to yield results quite quickly. I wondered if there's more sort of seismic health reform on the way. I mean, sort of Sunak's big health policy during the campaign was fining people for missing GP appointments, which, you know, it's a small thing, but it's very indicative of a sort of direction of travel that's been regarded as, that has been regarded as something you could not do in the past. Do you think he's going to um, be prepared to think the unthinkable about NHS in a way that predecessors haven't been, either of you? I, I would say that I actually think the social care um, issues might be looked at a little bit more closely because we know that the link between NHS as a whole and its its ability to function is so closely interlinked with social care. We've all been in A&E where we know that there are beds taken up with, you know, patients with Alzheimer's or or other conditions that should have been managed in the community. That's been the biggest thing that's frustrated me about politics for the, you know, the last few years is that we have these huge seismic challenges that people day in, day out are dealing with. And, you know, decisions about selling homes, decisions about where people are housed, decisions about funding care, they are massive. And they are, they are problems that are just getting worse. And, you know, Theresa May's government had lots of problems about this. There are some big thinkers on the back benches that actually they need to reach out to. But I also wonder if the likes of Mel and Steve, perhaps because they've got not only a they, not only a sort of financial sense, but whether they're going to actually do that reach out to look at the structural changes that need to happen and the way that, you know, different agencies, institutions and, and the thinking on how we fund this longer term is going to be looked at because doesn't feel like we're any closer to the solution on this. I just want to uh, uh, touch briefly on Michael Gove is obviously back at the Department um, for Leveling Up. So Leveling Up is clearly back in fashion, although this time around there's less money to play with. Uh, now, one other thing that Starmer brought up at PMQs was a probably familiar, fairly mortifying leak recording during the rounds of Rishi Sunak talking about taking money away from deprived urban areas, which did lead some to question his commitment to Leveling Up. Let's just listen again to that recording I mentioned. I managed to start changing the funding formulas to make sure that areas like this are getting the funding that they deserve. Because we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labour Party that shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas. Uh, and they, you know, that needed to be undone. I started the work of undoing that. Does levelling up under Rishi still mean what it meant under Boris Johnson, Will? Or is it, is it different somehow? I think the government will... Uh, not just commit to levelling up, but actually renew that commitment and double down on levelling up. So the reappointment of Michael Gove at the levelling up department is a very clear signal that Rishi thinks there's unfinished business there. There's legislation currently going through the House of Commons, which Michael uh, personally stewarded through its first few stages. Um, and with regard to that recording, uh, I thought Rishi Sunak's uh, response at PMQs on Wednesday was very interesting, where he doubled down on his comments and actually said, Yes, the Conservative Party wants to take money away from uh, metropolitan areas and invest in deprived coastal communities, rural communities, places outside major cities. And what's interesting about that is the Labour Party is increasingly the party of cities. And that's a problem for the Labour Party because they are not cutting through in post-industrial towns in the north of England. They're not cutting through in rural areas. And if the Conservative Party can own that kind of city versus the rest divide, that's actually not a bad place for Rishi Sunak to be. And I think Keir Starmer may come to regret that attack line. Joe, are you pleased to see Michael Gove back? I mean, that's, he was very popular with the housing sector. It does look as if he'll be welcomed back from that point of view. It looks like you know, maybe now the private renters reform bill will go through, you know, some interesting developments perhaps there. 
I mean, ultimately, Michael Gove's probably better to have in the tent, right, than outside, which is a judgment that you take. I think there's no question that, you know, Michael has been a huge thinker in, in government and, and went on the back benches for some time. And I think there are many that will welcome his return. I think the, the this issue about what's going on in certain areas, it is crucial for two different reasons at the next election, which is firstly, the red wall seats that genuinely want to see some changes in their areas. They want to see things improving. They want to see things being built. So there are some bits around his department that are quite crucial on that. But also there are actually some on the face of it, quite affluent areas that have some incredibly poor boroughs and poor wards within them. I was always struck when I worked back with Boris, you know, back in 2008, how we used to talk about life chances across parts of tube lines. And you'd think that there was an affluent area, but you'd find these huge pockets of deprivation that got no money. So, you know, there is something in what he was saying. I, I don't know how he meant it at the time, but I do think there is an issue that you can't just blanket all areas looking leafy and nice. There are bits that still don't work, even in those areas. Looking back on the last few days, it does seem to me as if sort of Sunak is inclined to treat the trust premiership like a sort of unfortunate blip. I mean, it's almost as if a sort of disgruntled intern had hacked the Conservative Party's Twitter account, but now they've changed the passwords and it's all going to be kind of fine again. But can you just really kind of go back to 2019 like nothing's happened? Are the voters going to forget that quickly, the sort of total chaos of the last seven weeks, do you think, Well. Well, I think actually many voters will not have taken a huge amount of notice about politics in the last six weeks. So uh, while clearly lots has happened and we've had a change of government, the idea that that this has been kind of on the TV of every household uh, in the country, uh, like it has been for many of us over the last six weeks, I don't think is true. And I think it is possible for Rishi Shunak to effectively say, um, we made some mistakes, we've rectified them quickly, uh, now let's move on. Clearly, there will be some damage and there's some economic fallout as well, which he is having to uh, respond to. But I do think in two years time, if, if all goes well in the next two years, Rishi Sunak may well be able to turn around and say, we are, we delivered on the 2019 manifesto and most people will not remember the last six weeks. Uh, or at least they, it will not be that live in their gone minds. Through the roof, even if, you know, it, it does seem to me as if, Joe, it does seem to me as if, you know, that's real damage that people notice in their pockets has happened over the last. If you if you had to if you had to secure a new mortgage deal, I think it has cut through more than than perhaps we can really quantify right now. Um, I think if you were on a, a fixed mortgage deal, for example, you would think, you know what? Oh, thank goodness. I've still got another year or whatever. Hopefully we'll see where the rates end up. But um, I think the the issue of energy prices was something that, you know, it was an immediate challenge and it was something that where some of the help was, was brought in potentially gave some reprieve. But who knows where we're going to be in six months, right? Given that there's a, there's an edge to that help now. So we don't know. It could be that a very cold winter and people that are still scared to or can't heat their homes or actually scared about what their energy prices are going to look like if they do turn on certain things, we could have some serious issues. Thank you very much. I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you, both of you. Thanks so much, Gabby. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Coutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 